Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbacast, the only baseball podcast in the world that still calls them the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. I refuse to change with the times. Don't change that name on me, Jordan. We're canceling devils now. What is this? I can't believe it. You refuse to adjust. I appreciate your principled nature into just sticking committed to the the purple, the purple and weird green that the Devil Rays once were. No, we are going to talk about the just the Rays on this episode. Sorry. This is the American League East preview of baseball barbacast. Uh, we are going to do that. We are also at the very end going to catch up on WBC, but because we have spent so much WBC time. We're going to push that to the end and get back to our season previewing. Again, the way this is going to work is we are going to tell you what happened with each team. Last season, we're going to tell you who came and who went during the offseason. We'll give you their projected lineup rotation and bullpen. We'll give you our five biggest questions, the Barry Bonds of the team, Barry short for barometer, the over-under, and then we move on to our next team. And we have a special guest later on as well. Before we get into our first team, let's take a bird's eye view, an Orioles eye view, a Blue Jays eye view at the entire American League East, a division that is generally considered to be the strongest in baseball. And my question for you, Jordan, is, is that still the case? Is the ALE still the undisputed King Kong of MLB? I think yes. I think what is so exciting about this season is while they cannot all win 90 games, I believe that is mathematically impossible. I could be wrong about that. Um, but uh, I do think that this year is unique in that all five teams do actually have winning aspirations, which is not something I do think you can say about certainly almost any other division generally ever. But because of the timing of the Orioles' rebuild and the timing of the Blue Jays' rebuild, we have not necessarily, and obviously the Red Sox are always trying, but we never really know what we're going to get. This does feel like a special season in terms of the goals of all five teams coming into it. We know that some of them are not going to turn out very well, but that is very, very special. I think you could put these teams in any order. And I wouldn't laugh at you, except for the Yankees last and the Red Sox first. I think other than that, you can squint and see a future in which all of these teams finish in any order, which is not something you can say about any of the other divisions in baseball. And we're going to start with the Orioles here in a second and not the Red Sox, and we'll explain why. I think you and I probably both agree that the Red Sox are the fifth team in this division. They are the best last place team in baseball by a mile, right? Like the crappiest team in the AL East is probably going to win at the lowest 75 games. Yeah. I mean, we just saw the Red Sox win 78 last year, you know, and they felt like a disaster, you know, and, and, but that was just the nature of the division even last year with the Orioles, 
you know, having the season that they did. So, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, it, it is that simple. The, the worst team in this division would be way, way, way better than all the other worst teams. Because you have these very stable, reliable entities in Tampa who is always within 85 to 93 wins because of what that organization has built. You have the Yankees who are in that range, maybe a tick above it because of the payroll and what that organization has built. The Red Sox are always going to spend money more than a lot of the other teams in baseball. So those three teams are usually trying to win, right? And you can bank on them being above 74 wins. And now that the Blue Jays are in an upswing, big upswing, and the Orioles have just entered their upswing, like we said, it is five legitimate baseballing clubs. But we will begin in Baltimore with my beloved Baltimore Orioles, who are projected per fan graphs for 77 wins this upcoming season, maybe a tick lower than some people who live and die with the black and orange would hope. Jordan, what happened in 2022 for the Baltimore Orioles? I mean, again, they only won 83 games, but it was the most, if the Red Sox were one of the worst uh, 78 win teams we've ever seen, then the Orioles were one of the best 83-win teams we've seen. And it came out of nowhere, relatively, right? We knew that they were that eventually, with the arrival of Adley Rutschman, that the season that the tides would turn and we would stop heading in a downward direction. But did we think that they could be above 500 last year? Do we think that they could look like a good team that could compete with any of these teams they at least for much of this season? No, no, I didn't expect that. Maybe you did. Uh, and that is what we got. We got a team that perhaps most miraculously, had a really damn good pitching staff that with a lot of the – it's not like they added a bunch of all-stars. It was just a bunch of the same names we were making fun of the year before, and then they pulled Felix Bautista out of nowhere, and suddenly you had a totally competent pitching staff, and that was that was really what drove this level of competency in a, in a really shocking way. Of course, they did not end up making the postseason, but there was – for much of, much of that season, it was like, oh my God, they have a chance here. And that alone was a huge victory for morale <laughs> at the very least. This team was 7-14 and 14 in April and 14-16 and 16 in May. When Adley Rushman was called up on, I believe the date is May 21st, that team was 16-25, and 25, okay? And when Adley was called up, the narrative was almost just call up Adley and everything will be okay. And that is such a reductive, oversimplified way to look at baseball, right? Because one player cannot change the fortunes of a team, uh, except apparently in the situation when Adley Rushman was called up. And then from that point forward, they were a postseason team. Obviously, a lot of other things went right and went well alongside Adley, but it was just the symbolic turning point for last season and for the franchise as a whole. Now, how is their winter? Underwhelming. Uh, the Inns, Adam Frazier, woohoo. James McCann, woohoo. Kyle Gibson, nice. Cole Irvin, all right. And Michael Givens is back. Woo! Woo! That is legitimately Michael Givens, back. Michael Givens is back. Legitimately yeah. exciting. Out the door, Jordan Lyles, Vibe King, Rugnet Odor, Jesus Aguilar, and backup catcher Robinson Chirinos. Let's run through this team. Behind the plate is Adley Rushman. First base will be Ryan Mountcastle. At second will be a lot, probably too much of Adam Frazier alongside Ramon Arias. Uh, 
Shortstop, looks like it'll be Jorge Mateo, at least to start the year. Gunnar Henderson at third base. The outfield will be Mullins, Cedric Mullins in center. It's Cedric Mullins! Austin Hayes in left. Anthony Santander, the bank is open and right. And the DH, I think, will be Kyle Stowers to begin the season. The rotation, Kyle Gibson, Cole Irvin, Kyle Bradish. Bradish, what am I doing? Dean Kremer, and I think Grayson Rodriguez, at least that is what it says on fan graphs right now. And the bullpen, uh, which was unbelievable last season. Felix Bautista, the Mountain, CNL Perez, Michael Givens, and a whole host of others. Now, there are a lot of contenders for that last spot in the rotation. Tyler Wells is probably in there. John Means will get back. We'll talk about him in a second. Spencer Watkins was really good last year. Austin Voth, Voth or Die, Drew Rahm. There's just a lot of guys you could take that spot, and it's very up in the air. The, uh, the starting lineup is also not exactly set in stone, considering how many top prospects they have at the upper levels, and we will get to all of that in a second. But Jordan, run me through the five questions for this team. Yeah, I mean, the first one's obvious. It's just like, was last season a true indication of a trend up towards legitimate contention? Or did a few too uh, hard hit balls, were a few too hard hit balls caught? Or is the pitching not nearly as good as we actually thought? And they will come crashing back to earth in some capacities, especially on the pitching side. Um, so how real was last year? That's number one. That's I think that's that's an obvious thing for any team that outperforms a season that much that quickly. So that's number one. Uh, number two is, <laughs> if you listen to this all offseason, you know that Jake repeatedly referred to Mike Elias talking about how it's time for liftoff. And yet, as we just described to you, their offseason, nothing that they did this offseason seemed to resemble liftoff. And so the question is, can this front office actually put the pedal down and start pushing to make to build this team more than just what they have drafted and developed and add from the outside. That's number two. Number three, if they do not do that, what happens with this next wave of hitters? Now, that could be related. They have so – listen, we know about Adley and Gunner, but you have to understand if you're not as familiar with the Orioles system, there is a lot more coming in the upper minors already at all, you know, at many of these positions, certainly in the outfield, certainly in the infield, Westbrook, Ortiz, Kerstad, all these guys – uh, Kowser, um, what are those guys going to arrive this year and show up the way Adley and Gunner did? Or do the Orioles finally make a big trade using that surplus of hitters to finally get some legit pitchers? Number four, John Means. Oh my God, a lot has changed since he last threw a baseball. What is what is he now? Is Does he return to just being the ace? Does he return to uh, just settle into a, a, a mid-rotation role, depending on how the rest of that rotation shakes out? What does John means when he returns in this new Orioles reality? And lastly, is Adley Rutschman obviously the best catcher in baseball by the end of the season, if he isn't already? Those are our five questions. Jake, where would you like to start? I want to start with the last one. Is Adley Rutschman the best catcher in baseball by the end of the year? Obviously. I'm going to provide a resounding and unequivocal no. And that has nothing to do with Adley Rushman. It has everything to do with JT Real Muto, who, bearing a uh, Space Jam situation, will remain one of my favorite players in baseball and the most impressive players in baseball over the course of the year. I do think by the end of the season, they are in the same conversation, where we're having legitimate debates about Real Muto versus Rushman. That being said, I don't know what Adley could really do to make us all forget about JT. 
but to ascend to a level where those two are in the same obvious breath. Because I think right now, it's pretty consensus. Like, Real Muto is the best catcher in the world, right? Mm -hmm. But Adley could definitely join that level. Yep. No, I'm totally with you. And I think Adley's offensive performance last year was so impressive. It was slow to start, but, you know, so was Julio. And by the end of the year, you didn't remember that. Um, and yeah, I mean, Adley had a 360 on base. Like that is outrageous for a catcher on its own, let alone the power. So yeah, we'll see. I, I Again, I, I am never going to be surprised by a catcher's offense falling off for any reason. I would not blame it on Adley for any reason. So, but he's clearly so valuable defensively that I agree. I agree he's going to be, he, he will be in that conversation. I mean, he already is. He already is in that conversation. I just think that it's going to require more about JT falling off than even Adley keep moving forward. To have a 98th percentile walk rate as a 24-year-old rookie catcher is asinine. That is outrageous. Now, the one spot where Adley did kind of maybe underwhelm is how less often he hit the ball hard than I think people were expecting. And that is an area where maybe he does improve. If he does not improve in that area, it doesn't matter because he's still a six-win player, right? there is a very obvious glaring place where he can get better, which is horrifying. Yeah, I would say. And then the other thing just with with Adley's offense, which was bizarre, is that he was really bad right-handed last year and pretty amazing from the left side. It was actually the opposite. I mean, he was amazing from both sides, but like he was stronger from the right side of the minors in 21. So that gives me hope that, you know, that 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 was just a fluke in terms of the sample size, um, but that was also just something I think to monitor with his switch hitting moving forward. But when you're talking about switch hitting again, you're you're nitpicking clearly already one of the best players in baseball. Um, but that is just another thing to monitor from his from his offensive standpoint. Um, what about some anything else on Adley? No. Okay, so of these other, let's talk about John Means because John Means his like to me in in my head. John Means threw the no-hitter against the Mariners and then got hurt. I know that's not exactly how it happened at all, but like that is in my head, that is what happened. I know he did pitch in 2022, but it was what, one start, two starts last year? Two I think starts. It was two starts. Two starts. So John Means only threw, you know, two starts last year. Just to re- remind everyone what John Means was before the the surgery. So he was second in rookie of the year in 2019. And what, what's amazing about him is, is if you don't watch John Means, if you've never watched John Means and you pull up his baseball reference page, r- respectfully, you'll be like, "What? I don't understand why. Is, who cares about this guy? Honestly, right? Like looking at you're looking at his stats and you're like, why are we caring so much about the guy with a 3.6 ERA with a 7 or 8K per 9? You know? And I think the answer to that is that one – he was on the worst team in the league and that he stood out so much compared to the rest of the pitchers as far as just like being a good, reliable mid-rotation starter that would occasionally give you that amazing outing like his no-hitter, right? But also, it was that he was a developmental win, right? He was a guy that was never a top prospect at all and had worked had with the organization, had become this reliable starting pitcher that you wanted to build around, that you wanted to have. And the surgery kind of delayed whether the question was whether he was going to stick around or not, right? Because before it was like, oh God, are they going to trade John Means? That, that was absolutely a question even in 2021. So where are you at as someone who, who of course loves this guy as you should um, as to where he kind of fits into this organization? 
I think he's been underratedly important over the last year. Even he was around a lot for a guy who is rehabbing more than I certainly expected. I saw him on the road with the team in New York a couple times after he got Tommy John. I think that he is alongside Anthony Santander, kind of the, they're the kind of the, the leaders in the clubhouse in a way, even though he wasn't there last season. And I think you you talk about him being reliable. If you pencil him into this rotation, you have three relatively boring but reliable pitchers. Cole Irvin, Kyle Gibson, and John Means, that's great. They're like a worse version of the Twins rotation, right? No one is is jaw, dropping your jaw, but everyone is going to give you like five solid every time out. And I think that that is a very underrated trait, and especially for a team like this that has so much pitching depth, John Means doesn't need to come in and dominate, which is a good thing for him coming back from Tommy John surgery. I think he'll be back around the middle of the year, maybe a couple of months into the season. But I'm thinking about him in the context of he didn't get to experience the surprising joy last season in the same way where if I had told you, the, oh, the 2022 Orioles are going to win 83 games, you would have been like, oh, well, John Means must have been great. And he didn't play at all except for those two starts. And so I'm excited for him to get to compete in front of a crowd that is roaring and giving a crap. Right. Because he certainly level. has not had that at really any point um, in his career. Um, and so I totally agree with that. Um, okay, well, well let's let's hit some of the other questions quickly. I mean, do you do you trust like I think underwhelming is honestly generous for like there is some people that understandably crushed this Orioles offseason from the standpoint of like, this is it. Like you are you had so much to go right. You have so much to build around. You have this amazing foundation. Why don't you spend even a little bit more than what you did? What would you say to those people? Because I'm kind of in between that and I think where you are. But what, where are you at on that? Like, is it fair to just crush this as one of the worst off seasons of baseball? Yes. Yes, it is. Because, I mean, I don't know if I agree with that, but it is totally fair. I think that their hesitancy to spend has to do a lot with the ownership situation and the finances and the Angelos brothers fighting and the lawsuit and the mass and lawsuit with the nationals or all these things up in the air that maybe prohibited them or made it not prohibited. Nothing is prohibiting them from spending, but made it less likely and eager to spend. That being said, this team was ready to roll. If you put Carlos Rodon or one of the shortstops or Brandon Nimmo or any of these big free agent signings into this lineup or this, this rotation, and you're looking at a team that could really compete for a division title, and this team is not that. Like, this team I don't think can win the division, right? They are a step behind the Yankees, a step behind the Rays, a step behind the Blue Jays still, even if everything breaks right. And because so much broke right last year, that's not going to happen again. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone who was good last year is going to underwhelm. And signing free agents to backfill that was a really important step that they did not take. Now, they did get solid baseball players. Mm -hmm. Gibson, Irvin, McCann, Frazier are all fine. McCann stinks, but they're all fine. It seemed like they were focusing on raising the floor and not raising the ceiling. And you can sort of understand that um, coming off a season like last year, but... 
also disappointing when you had when you had when you are seem to be ahead of schedule. I think it's maybe the way to put it. Um, that's why it was disappointing. So at the same time, it's hard to criticize a front office that got so much right quicker than anyone expected. Right? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Tell Mike Elias that he's not doing a good job, right? Yeah. And I think it does require a bit of nuance in critiquing how the Orioles operate because on one hand. They got back to contention and competitiveness a year or two before anybody expected. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, now they could really do the damn thing. And Michael Elias said it was liftoff time and there was no liftoff. Not even close. Right. Adam Frazier is not getting the damn plane off the ground. And so there is a general wariness in the industry about whether this front offense, the front offense, front office has the eagerness and the willingness to really go for it. And that also relates to the other question of, you know, can, what are they going to do with this wave of hitting prospects that are coming up? Because there are only nine positions on a baseball team. Will they trade package some of these guys for a legitimate front end starter? My answer for this year is no. I don't think that Elias uh, in that front office who has a reputation for being maybe the most ruthlessly efficient and like rational, reasonable front office is going to overpay for a deadline starter. When the demand is so much higher, I would be shocked if they did that. If a trade happens, I think it will happen after the season. Now, Jordan, I think at all of those questions, point to the how real was last year. Let's talk about how real it was last year when we do the over-under. Briefly, the barometer bonds here for me is Anthony Santander. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I think that is a good one. I think that you know we've watched him, we just watched him have this amazing round with Team Venezuela and the WBC. But, you know, treating him like he was a total nobody, uh, if you were just tuning in, like, oh, who's this Orioles guy, you know, showing out for Venezuela? I mean, he was fantastic last season. I mean, 33 homers. He was, like, you know, played 152 games. You know, the defense is not particularly amazing and right, but this is still a one of the more productive switch hitters in baseball. And that is is a really amazing reality for someone who – I, he was a rule five pick, right? He was, I believe he was a rule five pick uh, from Cleveland uh, way back in 2017. Man, he's got to quietly be one of the longest tenured Orioles at this point, uh, which is kind of wild. Um, but yeah, he's uh, he is he's a really, really important and productive player. And But again, you look at 2021, his OPS plus was 94. I, I just, I don't know. I, I, that's also how real he is. He, I, I do believe in him. But that's another one where you could see offensive regression, and now the whole offense just does not look as intimidating as it would be if I'm penciling in another 33 home runs, you know, an 89 RBI from Santander. So I like him a lot, uh, but I still think his offensive has his offensive performance since he's been a consistent big leaguer has fluctuated enough to where I'm not 100% sold, but I, I that's why I think he's a good candidate for our, our Barry Bonds, our barometer Bonds. Also, I think if this team underwhelms, he's the one who gets traded away. Mm-hmm. for prospects too. So it could be kind of a Mancini situation. If they are on like a 73 win pace, you could totally see Santander like hitting a home run in the postseason for the Dodgers. That's not out of the realm of possibility. The over-under in Vegas is 76.5. Jordan Schusterman, where do you sit? Oh, man. So the thing is, is like we're kind of, as, we're, as you'll see as we move forward here, 
unless you think the Red Sox are going to be terrible, we're basically saying if you're taking over, you're probably saying that you're having a similar year as last year where the worst team is at 78 wins, which is rare. That's just not a common thing that you have in baseball. Um, at the same time, I will st- I'll still take the over here. I'll still take the over here. I think they're going to be right around where they were last year, maybe a little bit less. And I think that has more to do with how strong I feel like the rest of the division is and got. And that even includes the Red Sox. Um, but it is, you know, more balanced schedule and maybe maybe they benefit from that. So I'll still take the over for them. 76 and a half. All right, let's move on to the Red Sox. I will take the over as well. Let's move on to the Red Sox who are projected for 83 wins from Fangraphs, which is nuts to me. What happened last year? Like you said, they were the worst 78-win team ever. A lot of injuries. Chris Sale punched a TV. Uh, Xander Bogarts left. That's it. Ins and outs. Justin Turner. Oh, let's just back up. A lot of movement this offseason. Weird yeah, offseason for the Red Sox. This is one of the busier, one of the busier offseasons um, that we had across the entire league for sure. So yeah, who's who's in and who's who's out? Justin Turner is in. Masataka Yoshida is in big money signing from Japan to play outfield. Adam Duvall leaves Atlanta. Dear God. He is in with the Red Sox, as is Jorge Alfaro, Adalberto Mondesi acquired in a trade. And then on the pitching side, Corey Kluber, Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin, and Jewish member of the tribe, friend of the show, Richard Blyer, out. Xander Bogarts, Rich Hill, Michael Walker, J.D. Martinez, Nathan Eovaldi, Tommy Pham, Matt Strom, Eric Hosmer, and Christian Vasquez. A lot of turnover for this team. And that means that their starting lineup looks a whole lot different than it did last year. Behind the dish is going to be a Reese McGuire, Jorge Alfaro, former top prospect tandem. McGuire was good for them last year, but that seems pretty tissue papery strong. First base will be Tristan Casas. Second base looks like Christian Arroyo. Shortstop, Enrique Hernandez. Third base, Rafi Devers in the outfield. Duvall in center, Verdugo in right, and Yoshida in left with Turner getting the bulk of time at DH. The rotation is Corey Kluber, the returning Chris Sale, Canadian Nick Pavetta, Tanner Houck, and Cutter Crawford. Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin, John Schreiber, and Ryan Brazier in the bullpen. Trevor Story and Adalberto Mondesi are both on the IL, a pair of shortstops. It looks like uh, Story will miss a good chunk of the year, whereas Mondesi, I believe, will be back in a month or so. Jordan. Walk, who knows with him? Walk yeah, me through I was gonna the say, question. I'm not counting on anything health-related with Alberto. I mean, I think with the pitching, too, you got to mention Brian Bayo, who uh, looked amazing yesterday. It seems like he has a good chance. And, and Whitlock, uh, who had hip surgery at the end of last season, I assume he will be at least either part of the rotation or a big part of the bullpen at some point this year. But as you mentioned, that's a ton of guys. You mentioned Matt Barnes. He was traded also uh, during this offseason. Just, just so much turnover. I mean, this was really high in bloom deciding, okay, this is what I would like my team to look like. We have to make all these giant changes. Sure, we have a lot of free agents anyway, but we're also going to, once we accept that AJ Preller is going to pay way more for Bogarts than we are, it's time to to spread the money out over a very bizarre combination of players that included committing big time to Kenley Jansen, committing big time to Corey Kluber even in one year, and of course, the giant bet on Yoshida. Let's get to those big five questions. Number one, Rafi Devers. 
Rafi Devers is finally extended forever, but now, now what? What are we, what are we doing now? Are we, is, is he, how are we showing him that he is, uh, as a part of a good team moving forward? Number two, can Tristan Cassis be the next guy right now? Can he actually be one of their best hitters right away? They seem to be handing him the keys and asking him to be that. Number three, is Chris Sale finally happy? This dude seems to have been one of the grumpier players over his entire career, but all vibes coming out of Fort Myers so far suggest that Chris Sale is in a good mood. So what? is that actually true? Is that actually true? Number four, Masataka Yoshida. What, what are we really expecting from him? Um, I am so fascinated, and I really hope he's good for a lot of reasons. And number five, is this pitching good enough and deep enough to make the playoffs, or is it simply good enough and deep enough to not be terrible? Um, those are our five questions. Where would you like to begin, Jake? Chris Sale, is he happy? You mentioned that he was one of the grumpier players in baseball over his career. He cut up the jersey when he was with the White Sox, and then he punched a minor league television last year in the dugout. It was recorded, and he has always just had this aura of angst surrounding him. Maybe some of that is how skinny he is. Maybe that's why he's mad. Everything coming out of camp this year is like every interview Chris Sale is saying, I missed all that time and now I'm appreciative and, you know, I'm happy now and I'm, I'm excited to play baseball and, and cherish the end of my career. Time is of the essence, blah, blah, blah. And I say to that, good for you, Chris Sale. You seem like you went to the Aaron Rodgers darkness cave and came out the other end with a new lease on life. Will that translate to you being good on the mound? I don't think so, but I certainly hope so for your sake. Jordan, I just don't like he has not been a real force in our lives on the mound for some time, right? Well, I mean, well, I, I so he's only made 11 starts over the last two years. So that is in that sense. Yes, he did not pitch in 2020 and he was not good. Um, in 2019, despite still striking, I mean, he's he's never not striking dudes out, right? You're I only right. had two starts last year, but even in 2019, we had a four-four. Like he struck out 218 guys, and so from my standpoint, I think he will be good. I think if he is on the mound, I think he is be good. Like this is not full Strasburg, you know, it's not even close to that. And and sure, he has only made 11 starts over the last few years, and he has had some self-inflicted issues, whether it has to do with not getting vaccinated, whether it has to do with punching televisions, whether it had like he, you know, has, has, I'm sure given himself some of his own challenges, but I don't know. I mean, he's looked pretty damn good in spring. He's looked like Chris Sale. Maybe he's not throwing as hard as before, but like, I don't want to forget how ridiculous he was. Like, I know we're pretty far removed from that. And that is true. You know, his last all-star season was 2018. But I'm 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 cautiously optimistic here. I don't know if it's enough for me to pick the Red Sox to finish above fourth, but I don't think Chris Sale is going to be the issue. Now, yeah, of course he could get hurt just as easily. I'm not penciling in 200 innings, but I I think if he's on the mound, he's going to be pretty good. Like he's 34 now, mm-hmm. and I know pitchers are good old nowadays. That's the new hot trend. I just am skeptical. Like he has not been Chris Sale. Since 2018. That's a long time. He was 29. He's now 34. Yeah. We, no, had, a pa- we had a pandemic. Okay. Yeah. You're engaged now. Things are different. In Those this things world. are different. Things so are I different. will take, and, and I'm not saying he's going to be bad, bad, but if he's a three and a half win pitcher, that is not enough for this team. And that's our next question. 
is this pitching good enough and deep enough to make the playoffs? It's certainly not good enough or deep enough to win the division. This team feels built to win the wild card, maybe, but I don't think it can win the division. Well, and also, you know, on the NL East preview, we talked about the geriatric <laughs> rotation staff of the or pitching staff of the Mets with Verlander, with Scherzer, with Ottavino, right? With all these guys, um, with, you know, Quintana and Carrasco. I mean, I'm looking at the Red Sox and their four main pitching acquisitions this offseason were 37-year-old Corey Kluber, 36-year-old Kenley Jansen, 37-year-old Chris Martin, 36-year-old Richard Blyer. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, okay, that's pretty similar. And these guys aren't nearly as good as the ones on the Mets. And so, of course, we're not comparing. No one's expecting the Red Sox to be as good as the Mets. At the same time, the risk is even greater here because if these things blow up, we're in a really, really bad place particularly in the bullpen. And I love the Chris Martin signing. I thought he was one of the more underrated relievers on the market, whereas Jansen may have been one of the most overrated relievers on the market. Uh, Kluber, I don't know what the hell to make of him, really. he's He fascinates me, but I, I think he can be a workhorse. I just don't not expecting an ace by any stretch. So um, it's going to have way more to do with those younger guys, with the Hauk, with the Crawford, Whitlock, Brian Bayo. Those are the guys that are going to be more important. But I do think that if the older guys are getting injured, like we're just going to be pressing so much on those younger pitchers, it could just get kind of messy pretty quickly. And I think that's related to Yoshida. There is so much volatility in the offseason. Justin Turner is in his late 30s. Adam Duvall spends so much time on the IL in recent years. Jorge Alfaro could totally suck, right? I know he was the MVP of the Dominican Winter League, but he could totally suck. All those pitchers you mentioned are very old. Adalberto Mondesi is always on the IL, right? They did, they maybe got better, and the ceiling for a lot of those guys is good, but the difference between success and failure with that group of players is a canyon. And so you could pencil in a season where they could really stink. And Yoshida, to me, kind of symbolizes that big question mark. He got a lot more money than I think a lot of teams and players and people around the game expected. The Red Sox paid him like a first division starting outfielder. Jordan, do you have skepticism or do you have faith in this player? I am I am confident. I I think he's going to be really good. I don't know. <laughs> the problem is like because he's the kind of the face of the offseason in a lot of ways you know, anything less than, you know, a 120 OPS plus, I think is going to be considered a massive disappointment. And he will be the one that's looked at as the problem when there are so many other problems on this roster that I think that that's unfair. Um, I think he's going to be pretty legit. I, I, I'll, I'll take the under on, on some of the power projections, but I do think that the on-base skill is going to translate. And I think he's, he's going to be a really fun player. I do believe that. It's important to remember, this is a player who had 80 walks and 41 strikeouts last year. Again, I understand it's not the big leagues. That is a wild ratio at any level, mm -hmm. right? And so you feel pretty good about the floor with Yoshida. Tristan Cassis is the other player where there's a lot of volatility. He came up last year and had a very bizarre batting line. I think he hit under 200, but he did an OPS plus over 100 in a very small sample size. Very active offseason for a player with such a small run in the big leagues. Questions about a trade to the Marlins. Uh, conversations about an extension. Can Cassis become that next guy? I think I'm in. I think this guy can really hit. I think he's pretty smart. I think I like the way he thinks about hitting. 
I think that Cassis can become a legitimate, maybe not an all-star, but like in that Reese Hoskins, Trey Mancini level of production over at first base. Yeah, I think the question with him is, do they actually roll with him or are they going to platoon him with Dahlbeck? Um, because that, like, are they trusting him to just get every every day at bats or are they going to shield him at least a little bit? That could tell us a little bit about how much they really trust him and where he's batting in the order. You know, that that is also, this, this batting order could look a lot of different ways. Uh, and so I think that's another big part with him. But I agree, Cassis is fascinating. But let's talk about our barometer bonds. I'm going with Kike Hernandez here. This is a guy who we saw have one of the greatest postseason runs we'd ever seen. And then last year, because of a variety of injuries that he was clearly playing through, was just downright terrible. He sucked. He had a 75 OPS plus. He only hit six home runs. His defense was still, you know, pretty good in center field, but certainly not game changing. Uh, he played, of course, some infield after after some injuries as well. Now he's suddenly penciled in at shortstop, and so because of all that, because of his offensive, uh, you know, volatility, because of the fact that he's suddenly playing shortstop, because of the fact that we've just seen so many different versions of him. He has to be the answer here, and uh, and also just from a from a you know vibe and clubhouse standpoint, I mean he's he's really the guy. Even more than Devers, even more than any of these other guys, it's it's really Kike is is now one of the faces of these teams. And if he can't get back to even league average with good defense at short, which you know he hasn't played consistently for a long time, then they're going to be in trouble. Over under seventy eight and a half wins, Jordan. Um, I am going to still take the slight under here. I think it's going to be pretty similar. Like I, I, I think they'll finish a little bit behind Baltimore. I think it'll be pretty similar to last season. I would take I like think, 75. I think this team is going to suck. I will yeah. take the under on 72 and a half. Wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. Going, going out of, out of your way uh, to really say how much they suck. All right. Well, that's interesting. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, it is time to talk about the Tampa Bay, not Devil Rays. Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President Bob Kendrick hosts the SiriusXM original podcast, Black Diamonds. The Negro Leagues didn't care what color you were, and they didn't care what gender you were. Can you play? Hear stories of the leagues and legends that shaped sport, culture, and society. That's why the museum is so important. It's like, we are never going to forget you. Episodes of the award-winning Black Diamonds are now available wherever you get your podcasts. We're not talking about balls and strikes. We're talking about your life. And we're back here on Baseball Barbacast. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman. It's time to talk about the devil. Mm. Eh, no, just the Rays. The Tampa Bay Rays, who are projected for 88 wins. I love that they were once uh, a fish or a sea creature, I guess. And now they're a beam of light, such as the English language. What happened to this team in 2022? Uh, they, they skirted on into the playoffs just by the skin of their teeth. Going 86 and 76, outlasting the hard-charging Baltimore Orioles by only three games. And then they went to Cleveland and just forgot to bring their bats, I guess. And Oscar Gonzalez walked them off and sent them home packing in the wild card round. Dude, I mean, one run in, what was it, uh, 
24 innings. I mean, it was it was one of the more pitiful offensive performances we've seen in wild card series history. No, uh, much more than that. It was it was it was bad. It was a it was an ugly ugly look for the Rays offense, but they still won 86 games. They have had uh, five consecutive winning seasons, of course, one of only five teams with that many consecutive winning seasons. And that is kind of where we're at with the Rays. They, we know no matter who comes in, who comes out, whatever randos they got in the lineup and in the bullpen, you know they're going to be pretty good. But who changed this offseason? Who are the guys that came in? Who are the guys that left um, since this season ended, since Oscar Gonzalez sent them home? This is a team with so many baseball players in the organization. It feels like they have 80 seven players on their 26-man roster at any given time. And what that means is there were a lot more outs than there were ins. Corey Kluber, David Peralta, Kevin Kiermeyer gone after a long stint. Ryan Yarbrough, the same. Mike Zunino gone. G-Man Choi gone. Brooks Raley gone. And the only big in is Zach Eflin, who the team gave the largest contract in franchise history to, which is really bizarre and remarkable. Largest free agent contract. Sorry, largest free agent contract. Uh, the starting lineup, who knows? All these guys will probably have different positions and different names and play be different sports by the end of the season, but we'll do our best. Behind the dish, it'll be a platoon of Christian Betancourt and Francisco Mejia. Yandy Diaz at first base, Brandon Lau at second, Wander Franco at short. You can count on that. Third base will be Isaac Paredes, who I believe is still in the WBC right now, right? Yeah, yep. still, still in Mexico. Yep. Still in Mexico. And the outfield will be Randy Arozarena in left. Jose Siri, friend of the show, in center field. Maybe we'll see how much run he gets out there. With uh, right field manned by Manny Margot, Harold Ramirez DHing. Again, that will probably all change two weeks into the year, and a bunch of names you've never heard of will be making the All Star team. The rotation does look a little bit more settled than it has been in years past. Shane McClanahan, who started the All Star game atop it. Drew Rasmussen, Zach Eflin, Jeffrey Springs, and Yanni Chirinos alongside McClanahan. And the rip the pride flag off my uniform bullpen of Pete Fairbanks, Jason Adam, Jalen Beeks, and Colin Poche. And again, probably a bunch of guys you've never heard of and we've never heard of who will finish the year with the ERAs under three. Now, a couple obvious omissions there. Tyler Glass now, who we hope to see at some point. This season, you know, he had the strained oblique a couple weeks ago. It looks like he'll miss the beginning of the year. Um, Shane Boz, another one who had TJ at the end of last year, would not expect to see him this year, but that's another name there. Uh, all right, let's get to our five big questions. Number one, Zach Eflin. Why him? Why was he the guy that got the largest free agent contract in franchise history? Number two, does Stephen A. Smith learn about Wander Franco by the end of the season? If the DR made a little bit of a deeper run in the WBC, I think we might have had a chance there. But <laughs> alas, it will it will count on the, the Tampa Bay Rays version of Wander Franco to do it. Number three, does Yandy Diaz get an MVP vote again? Yes, Yandy Diaz got an MVP vote last year. He deserved one, I would say. Number four, what is going on with this catching situation? Is this actually the plan? And number five, uh, Shane McClanahan is the ex-best pitcher in baseball, question mark. Where would you like to begin? Let's begin with Wander Franco, who was the, not just an Uber prospect. I mean, he was a Lyft prospect. He was a cab prospect, a Lime Scooter prospect, city bike prospect, however you want to get around your respective city. Okay. He was that kind of guy. 
He was awesome in his first stint of play at the end of 21 as a 20-year-old. Okay, he got a lot of injuries last year, only played in 83 games, but was predictably good. Now, at age 22, again, age 22, in his third season in the big leagues, feels like the time that Wander Franco really, really breaks out. And I asked this in the in the phrasing of does Stephen A. Smith learn about Wander Franco? It's very hard to burst into the greater sports consciousness as a member of the Tampa Rays. Shane McClanahan did it by starting the All-Star game last year. He was so good that they had to start him in the All-Star game so that people learned his name. Who is this guy? Shane McClanahan. Does Wander Franco do that, Jordan? I am skeptical, and here is why. His skill set is not highlight-worthy, necessarily. The reason he's so good is that he puts bat on ball, and he walks a good amount, and he's going to hit for a high average. I don't think he's going to hit more than 23 home runs. And I think his defense at short is more really solid than it is otherworldly highlight reel. So I think he has a chance to be the most boring five-win player in baseball. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I think that's fair. You know, he was three-and-a-half-win player in his rookie year in just 70 games. I do think – I think you're totally right. And honestly, like, it's Randy, dude. Like, this is (laughs) – this is Randy's team, honestly, even in their uh, very blah season that they had a year ago. And, like, we're being reminded now of just why Randy is is the face of it. And sure, I I would totally extend Ronnie Franco for that amount of money because you know exactly how safe of a skill set it is being a plus hitter from both sides, giving you plus defense, giving you... Yeah, but he's never... I mean, he, the most homers ever hit in a season is 11. And that was when he was a 17-year-old in uh, in the Appy League. And so I am totally with you. I think that he... But but at the same time, as far as the Rays being good, you do need Juan Franco to be able... Forget whether Stephen A. Smith knows about him or not, you are going to need him to get to, six, to a six-win player if they are going to challenge for this division. And I think he is absolutely capable of doing that. So. Jordan, I know this catching situation fascinates you. Explain why. Yeah, I just like for a team that is so where the pitching is so important and the, the game managing is so important. We talk, we'll talk about this with Cleveland on the AL Central preview about literally a guy like Francisco Mejia. I am just fascinated because Christian Bethencourt was basically out of baseball. Like this dude was not in, he was not playing meaningful major league games for five years before last year, six years before last year. And then suddenly he goes to Oakland, reinvents himself, the Rays trade for him, and now he's like option A behind the plate for the Rays. I mean, credit to Christian Bethencourt. He played pretty well last year once they got him. I'm just stunned that he, of all people, is plan A for them. I know the Rays pull these guys out of nowhere at all these positions all the time, but for such an important position, I am shocked that this is their main plan. I know they have some guys coming up, Renee Pinto, more of a homegrown guy that they believe in, but maybe it doesn't matter. Clearly they, they accept that he is good enough. I don't know what the other option is, who, who kind of guys they could trade for. It seems like they were poking around on Wilson Contreras at times, both trade and via free agency. They didn't decide to go that route. I, I, I'm just really surprised that, that this is really their, their plan. But again, like, well, who am I to doubt them? Like, obviously, they have a lot of smart people that have decided that this is sufficient. Uh, it's just surprising to see. One of the players uh, that that bizarre catching tandem will be receiving pitches from is the aforementioned Zach Eflin, who received the largest free agent contract in franchise history after finishing the year in Philly as a reliever. He will be in the rotation for the Rays. It is a very bizarre one. 
the second this happened, my first thought was, uh oh, they know something we don't. Right. It was, uh oh, if I'm Philly, I'm like, ah, shit, we missed it. Like we missed something. There's something here. Oh, no. Tampa figured it out. And now we all get to find out what that is, right? Like that's that's the fun of this. I think the interesting thing with Eflin, yes, he ended the season in the bullpen. He was with his starters pedigree, not that he was ever dominant in Philly. I mean, he was pretty good. He was a solid, solid four starter, I would say. That might even be a, a little general, but yeah, I would say he was a solid four starter at his best in Philly. Um, he was very quietly one of the youngest starting pitchers available on the market. Um, he ju- he still has he turns 29 in a couple weeks, which for starting pitching free agent age is really young. And so I do think that they absolutely see something in him that they, you know, he he looks like a starting pitcher. I mean, he's built like a starting pitcher. He has performed that. And so I, I'm with you. I, I just can't wait to find out what that is and, and what that really looks like from a production standpoint, because he's never, I guess in 2020 in a smaller sample size, he, you know, he had some more strikeouts, but the strikeouts had never really been a part of his game. But for Tampa, like, is that, are they, are they going to be able to get more out of him like that? Or, or is he just a younger version of what Kluber was for them last year? Right. Really reliable, 31 starts, you know, league average uh, kind of guy. Um, we'll see. I think that the secret here might be that there's no secret. They gave a three-year, $40 million contract to Eflin. This is not that much money. It's more indicative <laughs> right, that this team thing. does not spend that's any money just, ever. Yeah, yeah. And so for me, okay, worst case scenario for Eflin is that he's a, a totally sufficient reliever, right? right? Which is probably worth like three years, $40 million. But but not to the Rays. That's the difference is that the Rays are paying pennies for their bullpen all the time in a kind of like fucked up manipulative way that is very well documented if you are paying close attention to the way that they handle their bullpen to make it as cheap as possible. And so for any other team, yes, I agree with you. But there is a re- like it is still relative to them. There is a reason they gave him this much because they have to believe there's something more. I agree with you that I guess that is the fallback plan. Uh, but I think that they if, they if they are going to allocate these resources relative to what they are willing to spend, that tells me something more than that. Let's talk about a more exciting starting pitcher, Shane McClanahan, who was dominant in the first half of last season, just chucking absolute fuego from the left side, triple digit heat. He started the all-star game for the American League, which to do that as a Ray, you have to be so obviously the correct choice. And he was tailed off down the second half. I believe his ERA in the second half was over four. Got a little bit tired. First season of that level of workload for him. My question, Shane McClanahan is the mm, best pitcher in baseball. Yeah, I mean, I guess if if we're treating it like the Adley Rutschman question, you know, by the end of the season, what is he right now? I mean, as far as left-handed starters go, I don't know who else I'd rather have. I guess Rodon. I guess I think I'd rather have McClanahan than Urias pretty comfortably. So, yeah, it's a really short list. Uh, he's a top 15, I think, easily at this stage. And I think it is a matter of can you get into that top 10, you know, top eight kind of situation. Uh, it's just a matter of durability. That's always been the case with him. There was that terrifying game, uh, I believe it was at the end of August last year, where he was warming up and he like had there was like the footage of him like shaking his head and being like, nah, like it ain't happening today. Everyone lost their mind. It was like, up, oh, down goes Shane McClanahan. Is this gonna be a second TJ for him? 
And then he was back two weeks later, and he wasn't great down the stretch, only going four or five innings. But clearly it wasn't anything too serious, which is encouraging. But that is that does still spook me a little bit. Um, I think, yeah, if he's fully operational, he's absolutely that good. But I, I we still need to see him him hold up for even 150 innings again um, to, to really, really buy in, I think. Yandy Diaz got an MVP vote last year going from a memed out, ripped infielder who couldn't get the ball in the air to a less memeable, less punchlineable, legitimately good big league hitter who couldn't get the ball in the air. He had a 141, 143, 143 OPS plus with only nine home runs, which is very hard to do. Yeah, he had, you know, a a lot of this is like that number is driven a lot by the OBP and by the fact that OBP was down across the league so much last year. Um, But yeah, if you have a 400 on base percentage in the year 2022, you are, (laughs) you are doing something right. And he was so important for them with Wander going down last year and just, just, just an awesome player, a unique player. You know, we talk about guys like there's just not that many players like him in the same way that we talk about with Arise and, and some of the other like Quan, right? Like this is a very unique offensive skill set that I do think translates. He's always gotten on base at a, at a crazy high clip. He's got a 372 on base percentage for his career, which is nuts. Um, but like hard to imagine it being much better than what he did last year. And like, that was so important for them. And now he's, you know, 31, like, if he can repeat that, I think they're going to be in great shape, but I'm a little skeptical as much as I love him. Barometer bonds for this team for us is Brandon Lau, who was very emblematic of the, like the 2020-21 raise. He was awesome for them in both of those seasons. An MVP level type player both years, 8th in 2020, 10th in 2021. And he was just kind of hurt last year. It looks like he was battling through some injuries with a 102 OPS plus over a 65 game sample. If he can find that form and find some health and be that steady, boring left-handed presence in the middle of Tampa's lineup where he's not a platoonable guy, where they're not ever taking him out of the lineup and letting him just be the starting second baseman and letting him hit. Again, he hit 39 homers. That's what I'm saying. Like, I I agree, you know, personality-wise and, like, play-style-wise, it's boring. But 39 homers, like, it's clear 30-plus homer power from a second baseman, and that's just not easy to find. And so if he can do that, um, even with a bunch of strikeouts, then that is is huge. That is a huge, huge, huge deal because he he was such a big part of that offense last season. And and that's the thing is, like, who on the – by the end of the year, no one on the offense scared you at all. Even even Randy and and even Yandy just from the standpoint of he's not going to hit it over the fence. And so Lau can do that, and that can be an enormous difference maker. So I think he has to be the one. And I don't know exactly what his health standpoint is. It seems like he's he's good to go going into the year. Uh, But that is – completely changes the complexion of this team. So I think he's an easy pick for that. I will take the under on 89 and a half. I will too. I will too. Um, the glass now thing sucks. Like I, this is still like the injuries wise. Part of me feels like they were so hurt last year. There's no way they can be that hurt again, which should make me take the easy over on this. Uh, but there's just enough, enough shakiness here, especially with some of these pitchers that just don't have multi-year track records that I will also take the slight under if they make the postseason again, I will not be surprised in the slightest. Let's move on to the Toronto Blue Jays. I am wearing a Blue Jays hat for this episode, a Blue Jays hat that I got in Toronto, where I was briefly before uh, the pandemic started. 
Um, this is a really freaking fun team. This is now whatever. I don't know how many years we're now going into this. I guess like the third year where the Blue Jays on paper, few teams sexier than the Blue Jays of Toronto. Uh, they are projected for 89 wins. And what happened last year? Every, I, I like how you, I'll let you say this because you, you put this on the sheet here and I think you described it very well. So what exactly happened in 2022? It was an Oscar winning movie for which the sound and the video was just like a half second off at all times. They won 89 games, but, or sorry, no, they won 92 games, but that was somehow underwhelming. And it was just felt like they were just like a little bit behind the Yankees at every turn. And I think that that was very clear with the fact that they fired Charlie Montoyo when they were above 500, you know, and the talent was so good and it, it, Proved to be a really, really, really good team. 92 wins in the AL East is, is really impressive. And then it all came crashing down against the Mariners in really shocking fashion, getting shut out at, ho- at home, getting shut out, and then blowing an 8-1 lead after five innings um, was just stunning. It was one of the more stunning postseason exits we had last year. And at the same time, you know, that is kind of shakes you kind of it's kind of spooky right you know they they stick with John Schneider he's he's the manager now and you look at this roster they made some big moves and you're just wondering like okay Blue Jays like this should be a juggernaut team and it very well might be this year but that kind of performance and and not capitalizing when it was right there in front of you in August last year when the Yankees are a disaster and yet that's the one month that you are under 500 too so those kind of things with the Blue Jays, it's like, come on, like let's let's figure it out. It's all there. All the pieces are there to clearly win 100 games, and it's just a little bit off. But still a ton of reasons to be excited about this team coming into the year. In the offseason, they add Dalton Varsho in a massive trade with Arizona. They sign Brandon Belt, Kevin Kiermeyer, veteran left-handed bats. They haven't had a left-handed hitter in years. They have not had a single left-handed hitter taken at bat for them since I think 2019. Chris Back. Bassett comes in, big free agent signing in the rotation. They add Eric Swanson in a trade uh, for Teoscar Hernandez, probably their biggest uh, exit over the offseason. Teoscar Hernandez, Loris Gurriel, big parts of their outfield. Gabriel Moreno, they decide that is the catcher they're going to trade. Ross Stripling, no longer part of this rotation. And then JBJ, Rymel Tapia in the outfield. So, uh, a lot of activity. Blue Jays were a part of all lot of offseason discussion. They were going after all kinds of guys once again. Um, and they landed some, didn't land some others. They now enter a season with a really, really, really sexy looking roster. Behind the plate, it is going to be a combination of Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen. First base will be the man himself, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Second base, Whit Merrifield, remember he's on this team now. Third base, Matt Chapman, shortstop, Bo Bichette. Those guys are sweet. It seems like George Springer going to be sliding over to right instead of center. Center field will be Mr. Kevin Kiermeyer coming over in the offseason. Left field, Dalton Varsho, also the addition. DH will be Brandon Bell is on the Blue Jays. Wow, that is weird. The rotation, Alec Manoa, Kevin Gaussman, Jose Barrios, Chris Bassett is the fourth, looking good. Yusei Kikuchi still uh, maddeningly so in the five spot. Has looked good in the spring. And then the bullpen, which was maybe their downfall last year. Jordan Romano, one of the best closers in the American League. Eric Swanson comes over in the trade. Yimmy Garcia, Anthony Bass, Tim Meza. That dude's been on the Blue Jays forever. 
Adam Simber, Trevor Richards, and beyond. Hyunjin Ryu, Chad Green, maybe we will see them as part of this pitching staff at some point this season. Jake, let's get to our questions. Is Vlad Jr. going to be 2022 really good Vlad Jr. or 2021 MVP Vlad Jr.? The biggest difference between him last season and the year before was he kind of just simply hit the ball on the ground a lot more. His average launch angle was much lower. He was pounding the ball into the turf instead of pounding the ball into the seats. Do you think Vlad is a 165 OPS guy or a 134 OPS guy this year? I think it will be closer to 2021. I think he will figure that out. He is also low-key so durable. I love that he has missed three games since the start of the 2020 season. Like that is, I love that. The boat, you know, Bichette has his double little more injuries, but I, I'm I'm so in. I, I think it's the same kind of deal where just like how we felt after 2019, where it was like and 2020, where it's like, wow, he was so disappointing. Like, no, he was amazing. He was a child and he was still a well above league average hitter. You know, when you set the bar that high in 2021, uh, you know, I understand being a little disappointed. But I will take a much closer. Like, I think, right, so 1,002 OPS in 2021, 818 OPS in 2022. I will take the firm over on 900 in 2023. Remember, there were people, respectable people, who were wrong, but legitimately arguing that he should have won an MVP over Otani in 2021. Which the fact that, like, and the fact that anybody was even doing that is nuts. And a testament to how dominant of a hitter Vlad was in 2021. I'm all in. I think he is a elite, talented, generational hitter who is going to make the necessary adjustments and will be back in the MVP discussion this year if Otani like slips on a banana peel or something. Because <laughs> if he stays healthy, it's Shohei forever. Jose Barrios, a man who did not win the MVP award last year or the year before or ever. What a weird transition, Jake. The important thing to know about Barrios is that the Blue Jays traded for him halfway through 2021. They extended him that offseason, and he showed up in 2022 and was just straight up the worst pitcher in baseball. What's the deal, man? I mean, he allowed the most hits, the most earned runs. He made 32 starts, you know? He was, was going out good, there. Is that a good thing? <laughs> it was not a good thing last year. But it was just a stunning development for someone who was so reliable. He was, again, so durable. He made every start for the previous four seasons before he got traded and last year. He basically hasn't missed a start for five seasons running. And yet last year, it just went to shit. The strikeouts went down. The homers went up. That He was getting just so many hits. I, this is one of the biggest mysteries in the entire sport. I know some smart people have written about him and I have, you know, I, I, I've have some sort of sense for the, some of the command woes and some of the issues here, but it's, it's always when a guy is not injured at all and gets this much worse in his age 28 season, it is just one of the weirdest things in the world. Especially because the stuff didn't change at all. From a velo perspective, his pitch mix didn't change at all. He just was worse at putting it where he wanted it to go and throwing it in the right order. I mean, it literally looks like 
the to me looking at this is like he had to have been tipping the entire season. <laughs> like I don't I don't understand how you could be throwing the same stuff in for in your seventh year everyone to suddenly figure you out at the same time. Like I it's so weird. It is so so weird. And he's an important player for them because they extended him and gave him a lot of money and a lot of years, which made a lot of sense at the time because he was so young and so good. And this is a big season for him to either find his shit again or just be a huge albatross for this Blue Jays team that is kind of maxing out where they want the payroll to be. And he's going to be taking a big chunk of that and they need him to perform in the rotation. Let's stay on the pitching side, Jordan. Jordan Romano, fellow Jordan, broke out in 2022 with an incredible season as the ninth inning guy for the Blue Jays. We feel pretty good about him in the later innings, but this bullpen was the source of dismay at the end of the year with that implosion against the Mariners. And our question is, who is the second best reliever on the Blue Jays? Yeah, so I think they probably want it to be Eric Swanson, who they just traded Teoscar Hernandez for. Um, and Swanson was awesome last year, so I think that's extremely plausible. But still, for a team with World Series aspirations, I'm not sure he should be your second best reliever. You know, Anthony Bass was really good. He's a little bit older. Amy Garcia is a little underrated. Simber is is... Simber's the kind of guy that is safe in the sense that the weird arm slot guys are normally going to be pretty reliable and healthy. He had an area under three last year, but you're never, it's not like you're bringing him in necessarily to strike out the side. So, and that's what so many bullpens are now is you just have five guys that can strike out anybody in the league. And the Blue Jays just simply do not have that on this in this staff at all, besides Romano. And so I think it's still a big weak spot. And so they're they're gonna need a lot of those relievers to to step up big. I think Nate Pearson is is a big part of this conversation too. Who's who knows if he starts the year in the big leagues, but I think he's another one that I think could be a big, a big part of that as well. So yeah, I don't I don't know who that that second best reliever is gonna be. There's no one that you feel really confident about, and that's a big difference between them and some of the other contenders and maybe why when you look at this team on paper, you're like, oh, my God. And then you look at the bullpen, you're like, oh, my God. And it's not a bad group. It's important to understand that. It's just not a group uh, befitting of the rest of the talent on this roster mm-hmm. is where I would where I would put it. Moving onward, maybe not the best bullpen in baseball. But is this the best lineup in baseball? I mean, there's a version of it that that certainly could be. I think a lot of that is going to have to do with Brandon Belt, who's now suddenly in the middle of it. I think a lot of that has to do with Dalton Varsho as he transitions to his first year in Toronto. And I'm, I mean, he's one of my favorite players in the league. And yeah, if you're getting a full year out of Springer, I'd think... Sure, and if we're projecting for for uh, for Vlad to get back to MVP level, we know how good Bo is. Like, sure, I think this absolutely can be the best the best lineup in baseball, and that's I I know that there's more safe picks, of course, with Houston, of course, you know, with the Padres in terms of top heavy stuff. But yeah, there's there's versions of this now that it is more balanced with with some left handers in there. And with the ceiling of those younger guys in the middle can still be so much better like Bo and like Vlad. Yeah, this can be the best lineup in baseball for sure. Last thing to discuss about the Blue Jays, Jordan, is their home run blazer, a suit coat that they have been throwing on to players whenever they hit a home run. Now, there are some rumors 
that it is going to leave town. So, Jordan, what happens to the coat and why is it leaving? Uh, it seems like they are trying to turn the page. They're trying to grow up a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to still have a good time. I mean, look at the people on this roster. They're still going to have a good time when they hit home runs. I will say part of me also feels like hey, Oscar Hernandez was such a big part of this and he's no longer on the team. I don't know if that has anything to do with it either. Um, I think they'll keep it within reach. I think there's a chance it popped. There's no way they threw it out. Like it still exists somewhere in uh, in in their stadium. But I don't know. It seems like maybe they'll come up with something else. This is a quote from uh, manager John Schneider, who seems to maybe be throwing a little bit of water on the fun parade. Quote, home runs are great. And I think you celebrate those. Whoa, hot take, John. The overall message, whether it's putting a jacket on or doing something in the dugout, is we want to celebrate more than just home runs. We want to focus on catching the ball. We want to focus on getting on base, things like that. But it's totally up to the players. We've talked about it briefly, and we'll see where we land. Doesn't sound like it's up to the players there, John. <laughs> I was going to say, it seems like they need something, a jacket for a reliever that gives them a, a scoreless inning. <laughs> I think that would maybe be promoting more of what this Blue Jays team needs more than the home runs, which we know will be coming at some point anyway. It is very funny that they have chosen to like poo-poo the jacket in any way at all that it is. This makes me feel a little worse about the Jays, to be honest with you. Like, no shade of John Schneider, but if we think that the home run jacket was enough of a problem, like a legitimate issue that needs to be changed, I don't know, man. Yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, but that is interesting. All right, let's get to our Barry Bonds for the Blue Jays, our Bromner Bonds. I'm going with Matt Chapman. Matt Chapman, another just bizarre uh, career trajectory. Let's just re- like he was a seven and a half win player in Oakland in 18 and 19. And, you know, he's finished, got MVP votes. Of course, he won gold glove. He had was slugging 500. And since then, he has become a very, very reliable, but also not superstar level player who is hitting closer to 220 than 250. And he has been a three and a half win player each of the last two years, one in Oakland and then last year in his first year in Toronto with 27 homers in each of them. He's entering free agency after this year, has an opportunity to be the best hitter entering the free agent market besides Shohei Otani. And he's another one here where if he somehow resurges to seven win Matt Chapman, then watch the fuck out. If he is still three and a half win Matt Chapman, that's a good player, but not a player that is elevating this team to one of the best in baseball like we thought it could have been when they traded for him last year. Because honestly, at no point last year was Matt Chapman driving the You know, he was never pushing this team to a greater level. Yes, his defense means a ton to have that over there than whatever Vlad Jr. was going to be attempting to do over there. Um, That is obviously great. He is a very good player. But he looked like a ceiling raiser when they got him. And instead, he was just kind of part of a very good team. But there's a version of Matt Chapman that makes this a great, 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 great team. We just haven't seen that since 2019. It's basically how much he's striking out. You know, the K rate skyrocketed 
compared to where it was in 2019, where it was at you know 22% K rate. His first year in Toronto was a 32% K rate, down yeah. to 27 last year. So if he could put the ball in play a little bit more while still maintaining some of that pop, we've seen it. He can be one of the best five third basemen in all of baseball. Jordan, over, under time. 90 and a half, uh, easy over for me. Um, I he's way easy over for me. We love this team and, uh, we didn't even, you know, touch on some of the other bigger parts, but I just think that they added more than enough. I think that even with a relatively blah bullpen, I think this offense is going to be special. And I think the pitching staff, the starting pitching is good enough to be a very, very good team and definitely capable of being better than the Yankees. I think the names that we didn't say on this preview until now, Kevin Gossman, Alec Manoa, Bo Bichette, are players that we simply, Alejandro Kirk, are players that we feel, George Springer, are players that we simply feel confident enough in where, oh yeah, that's just a four-win player. Oh, that's just a three-and-a-half-win player. Mm-hmm. Oh, that player's really good. Where That's a compliment. That's <laughs> Honestly, like if we're not talking about you in that sense in these previews, it's probably because we are sure you are going to be good and normal. 100%. Now, the one exception to that is Bo Bichette, who I think has a chance to really elevate another level into one of the game's best shortstops, which is what he was down the second half last year. Just keep an eye on Bo, who I think could be a dark horse top 10 MVP guy by the time the season is all said and done. Enough about these pointless, meaningless baseball teams. Let's talk about the only one that matters. And to do that, it is time to bring on another person named Jake. Yes, it is time to bring in Jake Storiali of John Boy Media. And before our conversation with him, we just wanted to mention that when we recorded this with him last week, it was just before it was announced that they will be having Aaron Boone on their Yankees podcast, Talking Yanks, every week throughout the course of the season. I am fascinated to see how that goes, but just wanted to mention that we did not know that before we had our conversation with him. We would have mentioned it. So just wanted to flag that. But until then, uh, we're going to take a quick break and then enjoy our conversation with Talking Jake about the Talking Yanks. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. The AL East preview rolls on, and it's time to talk about the Yankees. And who else would we rather have than Talking Jake himself joining us from, I believe, some one of the many rooms in the John Boy office? Talking Jake Soriali, welcome to Baseball Barbacast, my friends. Good to see you. What's up, boys? I'm uh, I'm honored. I, I laughed when you guys post the graphic, and it was like Deisha. Us, and I was like, oh, people that are like on TV and professional about talking. Uh, and yeah, I think, they, you know, you said, who else would we want to talk Yanks with? Yeah, I think a lot of your crowd's probably saying, John Boy, go there. Um, but no, this uh, this will do. And I'm excited, man. I'm, dude, we're almost there, boys. I missed it bad, man. Like, I had that realization. I need baseball. It's funny because it's like, yeah, you can never hear Jake talk about the Yankees. So we, we figured we had to get him on. <laughs> Get him on here so you can finally yeah. talk about your second favorite baseball team, of yes. course, behind the Italian national baseball right. team. Congratulations to you and the fellow Bada Bings. But let's start off by turning the clock back to 2022 and briefly summarize the season that was. How did the season go for you? How did it end? How have you sat with it over the winter? 
So we've been recapping a lot as we've gotten ready for the season as a whole and the Yankees season. And it's funny going back and they're the Yankees. Like, you know, I, I remember when we first met you guys and, you know, <laughs> you guys almost had like a little shoulder up because you're like the, the goddamn Yankees. And I get it, man. I, I absolutely get it. Our, we were talking about 2021 today where they won 92 wins and it was like a disappointing year. They lost in a one game wildcard. So our standard is just different and it's ridiculous and I get we can be annoying. And I think the biggest thing looking back to last year that blindly led the Yankees to an incredible, credible start was Clay Holmes and Mike King at the back of their bullpen. Yeah. Uh, sneaky games were over. Old school 2015 Royals style. Um, you know, that's ignoring other dudes they had in their pen. But Clay Holmes was almost perfect. Mike King was arguably the most electric reliever in baseball and for multiple innings that whenever they had a lead, it was done. Like there weren't blown saves. It, it was kind of unreal looking back. And then Mike King gets hurt. Clay Holmes loses it a little bit. Uh, <laughs> he had to we, go he had to go on sabbatical for a month and just go sit on a beach somewhere. We're hoping that was just fatigue from a big use season and, and let's hope that so. And then the lineup kind of got exposed. The, the the Yankees lineup, the Bronx Bombers, the teams that helped build me become an obnoxious Yankees fan with Jorge batting ninth and things like that. The Yankees lineup got thin quick and with a couple injuries led to one of the worst August in team history, literally. Um, not Yankee fan dramatic stuff. That was just bizarre because they ended up winning the division by a chunk. And a 99-win season, which is incredible, and you get to the ALCS, you come back against a tough Cleveland team uh, who earned my respect in a big way last year, but then you get rolled on by Houston, uh, who was the team you knew were going to be there all year. And sure, were DJ and Benny huge injuries because of their style of play and what they do for the lineup? Absolutely. But they weren't the difference. Uh, yeah. So – so, yeah, and there was obviously the shortstop question, which I think we'll dive into in a little bit, that overlooked the parts of last season and now are doing parts of this season. And, uh, yeah, overall, the year was solid. It's, you know, for the Yankees, it's a good year. But also the one team you knew was going to be there right. rolled you. It wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, it's the Rangers. What? No. Right. Like it, you knew it was going to be the Astros the whole time. Okay. So now we look ahead. We are still looking at a roster that is pretty similar, <laughs> pretty similar. We'll get to the new. So, so Jake, let's, uh, Jake Mintz. Oh God. Two Jake's on a podcast. Jake Mintz, please give us the quick recap of their winter. Who's new, who's gone. Uh, and, and so, so on. Carlos Rodon friend of the show he comes in with the big old mustache yes. he's already already a little hurt but you know that's fine we'll figure that out as we get there tommy canely and his enormously thick thighs and eagles fandom is back as well andrew benintendi who like i have just totally forgotten about to be honest with you is on the white Sox. he's gone tyon is in chicago chad green is in toronto and matt carpenter is in san diego but the two important retentions, obviously, are Anthony Rizzo and Aaron Judge. I will say, being at that press conference was the first time I felt the draw of, like, 
the pinstripes of the Yankee dumb. I was like, maybe this is important. And then I woke up the next morning and didn't feel that way. Let's move through their starting lineup behind the dish will be Jose Trevino, who will split time with Kyle Higashioka. First base will be Anthony Rizzo. Second, I'm just going to do my best. Second base will be Glaber Torres. Shortstop will be Oswald Peraza. Third base will be Josh Donaldson. DH will be DJ LeMahieu, probably. And then the outfield, at least to start, will be Judge or Hicks in center. The other in left or right. Oswaldo Cabrera will be somewhere. That leaves out Giancarlo Stanton. This lineup is very, very confusing every time I think about it. Garrett Cole is the ace atop the rotation. He will be joined by Severino, Herman, Clark Schmidt, Nestor Cortez, and Carlos whenever he heals up his boo-boo. And the bullpen, as you mentioned, will be led by Holmes, Michael King, Wandy Peralta, and uh, Israel's little child, Jonathan Loisaga. <laughs> oh, man. Sorry. Sorry. Had to do it to him. Had to do it to him. <laughs> Yo, did you, Jake, did you watch that game? Did you watch it that game? I, I saw the highlights. I did not watch the game through. So it was, it was incredible because like every guy in Nicaragua was throwing like 87 <laughs> and like Israel couldn't touch them. And then it was like, here's the only Johnny. here's the only elite pitcher in the entire nation. And boom, done. Yeah, it God. was it was surreal. But I but hey, I believe in him. That dude is awesome. And I know uh, I know Team Israel got to him, but I definitely believe in him. And then, of course, you know, Marinaccio and, and some of the other guys that, that, that have stepped up big for the bullpen, which was so important for them last year. Now, a lot of that consternation about what this time's going to look like is because we already have a boatload of injuries, and we certainly have to get to that in some capacity. But let's present our five biggest questions, okay, first for us. We'll see if these match up with you, with your five biggest questions, all right? Yes. Um, here's the first one. Who makes the most starts at shortstop? By the end of the season, okay, that's a that's a pretty big. One. You wanna, let's answer that. You want to answer that quick? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, it's not an easy one. I'm sure you've all been talking about it 24 seven for the last two months. But go ahead, start there. I I will say Peraza. Um, as Peraza came up and played last year, Peraza, from everything we word, our our deepest whispers and you know little birdies have said early on that Peraza defensively is a better shortstop than Anthony Volpe would be. Um, IKF still lurking, but if you look at recent spring training lineups, that's where we are, people. Uh, IKF actually hasn't played shortstop in a little bit, um, and they've been rotating between the kids. So I will take Peraza because I have a pretty good idea. He'll be on the roster. He played last year. Was good, by the way. (laughs) Was good in the games he played. And he's supposedly the better defensive shortstop. So I will go Peraza. Yeah. yeah. I, when I was in spring training down in Tampa, watching Peraza and Volpe next to each other taking infield, Anthony's not bad. Like he is no. a competent, like average big league shortstop. Peraza is special and can do things that Volpe can't, which is raises the question like in your head and in my head too, like I've been thinking of like Anthony Volpe, next Yankee shortstop. Are, have you made that mental switch to Anthony Volpe, like next Yankees second baseman? I can, because uh, I'm a fan of winning baseball. So I want what's okay. best for the team. Now, the higher up you get in the Yankees front office, a kid from Jersey who can play at shortstop well enough, uh, Anthony Volpe. Uh, by the way, this is the team that in, on their games when Gallo or Rizzo would homer, they would play Italian music in and out of commercial. 
And I know I just got a little more Italian when I started talking like that. So <laughs> do I wonder if there's some things above the baseball decision makers that if Anthony Volpe can be a fine shortstop, that they might lean into that? Yes, I'm not going to go there yet. But yeah, I, I mean, people that I would trust their opinion over mine said, yeah, in a couple of years, Peraz is the shortstop, Volpe's the second baseman, which end of the day, I don't care. And the baseball people kind of shouldn't, but I think we'll find out soon. Yeah. There'll be a situation. I it, There could be a situation where like Peraza gets hurt, Volpe slides over there for a couple of weeks, and that's just kind of it. But as where we're at right now, IKF seems delightful, delightfully out of the picture. Uh, Jordan, let's run through the rest of these preguntas. All right. Uh, second question. This is a question that would that uh, three weeks ago would have been like, why are you even asking this? But now we have to. And that is, how many starts do the combination of Luis Heal, Randy Vasquez, Yoendris Gomez, Johnny Brito, and Davey Garcia have combined this year? One of the other amazing things about the 2022 season was how healthy the starting rotation was. They only had, I think, eight starts made out of the top six um, that were, you know, so obvious uh, once once Montas came in. And then you don't include her, Mont- I guess, top seven once you include Montas. I was at the Chi-Chi game, baby. Yes, sir. <laughs> Hell of an outing. Um, the, the Chi-Chi game. Yeah. So of that group, like, now that we already have some injuries, hopefully none of them, we know Montas won a serious. So there's going to be some innings to cover. Hopefully Carlos is back soon. But like that, I mean, how how worried are, are you? That, or it seems like there's so much focus on left field and shortstop that I haven't seen a lot of Yankees discourse specifically about the pitching. But now the injuries have kind of brought that to the forefront. Where are you at on that? Let's find out the next thing with Rodon and the Yankees. And Carlos came out with the best quotes he possibly could. If this was a playoff game, I'd be pitching, and et cetera, et cetera. It's not anything close to Tommy John. So let's get that next update, and let's assume it's good and we're talking end of April. Because uh, if not, that changes this whole conversation a lot because that's what made the Yankees offseason a win. Because uh, like you guys alluded to with the lineup and everything else, not a ton of change. So um, assuming that uh, I'm buying Clark Schmidt st- stock, uh, this guy, if he was in any organization, would have been a starting pitcher the last three years. Like there's sometimes the Yankees get in the way of their own players development. Um, and he had one thing to work on this offseason. He was lights out against righties. He had to work against lefties. He added a cutter. Experience comes with that. He's been waiting for this opportunity. I'm buying Clark Schmidt stock. Domingo's going to pitch. He always finds a way. Um, he's already our four. So uh, the guys <laughs> you mentioned, Johnny Brito, he's he's the one that the little birdies say, like, you know, it's funny. I was told, like, hey, he just gets guys out. And then I watched him in spring training. He punched 96. Like, it, it, I was expecting to see Aaron Seeley out there, like, throwing 88. And no, it's like, okay, so this kid's a beast, and he's he's had really good minor league numbers. So I think he's on deck. And the littlest bit of Davy stock, and I'm biased, uh, the Yankees put him through the rigmarole in the minor leagues. They tried to change his pitch mix. He was very young. I'm super biased. He's the only newspaper I've ever purchased in my life. has Davey Garcia on it. Um, but I think he took his lumps. He reworked through his pitches. The velos back up. And what you guys are also alluding to, there's no Vets. There's no Wojciechowski. There's no Chi-Chi. There's no Hules Chassin. So do I think one of those guys will end up? Absolutely, in a trade deadline piece. But, yeah, of those young crews, Brito, uh, he, he's the guy I'm in. And it's interesting because that depth 
that isn't there or maybe isn't there is on the Oakland A's and the Chicago Cubs in exchange Ooh. for Montas and Scott Efros, who unfortunately both immediately got injured. Hey, maybe if Team Israel had Scott Efros, Jordan, then we could have beat the Dominican <laughs> seven to zero. Maybe instead. could have avoided some run rules there. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. But Brito's a great shot. I mean, they I believe they just added him to the 40 man this past offseason. He's, he's on the 40 yeah. and I I was you know, the Yankees have come up with so many of these guys that kind of weirdly quietly go through the system. You know, the, the hitters often get more hype. Um, I will not believe the Davey one until I see it with my two eyes, but I appreciate I, I appreciate your optimism um, on that one. All right, let's move to our next uh, question here. Jake, I know you like this one. So last year, Yankee World more or less bullied Joey Gallo in to getting traded. Now, it's obviously more complicated than that. Everyone should go read. Lindsay Adler wrote a bunch of really good stuff on that dynamic. But it was clear that by the end of Gallo's tenure, he was domed up to the point that it was never going to work. Will that happen to Aaron Hicks? Oh, interesting. Uh, no. Hicks has been here since 2016. Man, wow. I, I know you guys know baseball. That's not... To stay with the team for that long, it's 2023? Uh, so Hicks knows New York. He knows the deal. Gallo, um, and, you know, I, I've, we've got our edge up a little bit as Yankee fans. I've heard rumors Gallo never wanted to come to New York. And when I say rumors, I mean they're pretty much confirmed. And Joey Gallo said the Yankee fans were tough on him. You got a little bit of taste of the Yankee allure this year. Guess what? When the Yankees were playing good and Joey Gallo came up and they were up 8-1, what were the stands chanting? Joey Gallo. He got support, man. I, I realize he got some boo birds too because if you don't perform in the Bronx, that's what happens. Hicksie, he has heartstrings with Yankee fans. You only yeah. feel them when he's playing good, <laughs> which is really rude. <laughs> um, and what does good mean? Because, you know, a guy that if he's getting on base at a 340 clip and playing all right defense, that's a guy, right? That's a that's right. a major league body. Um, he was a little bit. But like then your your uncle year. your uncle Jerry or oh. Tony is like, oh, Hicks is hitting 210. And like they don't, you know what I mean? Like there is that dynamic at play with him. Like him and Gallo are not dissimilar in that way where the value that they provide is like slightly under the surface a little bit. It's it, we struggled at first with Hicks's approach. Cause he's, he's one of a true guy who is looking for the walk and, and that's Never just swing honest. Guys. And that's, it's just honest. So it, it took us a little bit. And then he had that one really nice year. Was that 18 or 19? 18. Um, and, and again, that's one of the not juicy Lucy ball years at 17 or 19 around that. Right. So uh, Aaron Hicks, he has it, and there should be less shifts this year, and he's a big shift guy, so maybe yeah. there's a little help there. Um, and, I mean, you guys remember Aaron Hicks used to be our three-hitter. So <laughs> yeah. that's where No, when he, he was on, man, it just it just went south so fast. Well, and that's where the uncles used to get hot, too, because you'd see, you know, Judge hitting two, Stanton hitting four, and you're looking at Hicksy in the three-hole, and it was, you know, it's kind of that dragon meme that the kids use. Um <laughs> So here's what I'll say. Hicks has survived this long. The Yankees still have a lot of questions in the outfield. He's going to get some run. And um, Yankee fans at the end of the day are rooting for Aaron Hicks, man. Um, you know, 
this offseason, did I think one of him, Donaldson, or IKF wouldn't be on the roster? Yes. Are they all still there? Yes. So that makes it a fun little puzzle to figure out. I am the number one biggest Cabrera stan, and I think he is like a very special player who will figure it out. Like switch hitting Chris Taylor with a little bit more juice is like for me what I think he can be. And to have Hicks there kind of lumbering around in his spot at the end of last year at times made me as someone who doesn't even care about the Yankees decently frustrated. Let's talk about Aaron Judge. He was okay last year. How many home runs in 2023 is not a disappointment? What is the lowest number of homers he can hit where people are not underwhelmed? Because if he hits 60, it's fewer than last year, but no one's mad. (laughs) But if he hits 10, that's a problem. Where's the sweet spot? So so let's consider... Health aside, right? Obviously, if, if 155 if judges, games, yeah, even 145. You know, he, he's he's got a thing and he's out there. Um, it's it's pretty sick in the head, but the number's like 40. Like it, it kind of has to start <laughs> yeah. with a four if he plays that many games. Um, and it's what we just did his. Uh, we do player profile and projections, PPPs on every player, and we just did his, and we did this question. Um, and we went through some of the Sosa McGuire. How did they follow up their big years? And all we did that whole thing. If it starts with a four, he's covered. I mean, a 40 homer season. What do you do? I, I, you know, and I, I think the other thing for me is Aaron Judge has always been very good. Um, and and I, I know hot takes only over here. Whoa, but Watch I, it, I think I, I'm going off the top of my head, but I think he's a career. 284, 395, 977 OPS. Think about that. A career, a career 977 OPS. Like that's, you know, the, the, the after the shoulder all-star break, that's everything all in, hitting the wrist with the pitch, all of it in. He's that guy. So as long as he's out there, he's going to put up the numbers. And by the way, that, (laughs) <laughs> you talk about looking back at last season and how you feel. Go check out his final month of the season where he got on base while chasing down the American League home run record at over a 500 clip. Uh, the dude's insane. He's built for all of it as long as he's healthy and out there, which, by the way, the injuries are pretty fluky. He's going to rake and he's going to be good. But, yeah, to, to the casual fans, he's going to need at least a four in that front column. And I think he will. If he's out there, I mean, he hit 39 in 148 games in 21, and it felt like it was underwhelming, and he finished fourth in the MVP. To your point, he's never been bad. He was only bad for those first 30 games. It's basically like Trout, right? When Trout came up, he sucked. And then after that, he was a top five player in the league immediately and has been ever since. And Judge has basically been the same way, except with the injuries along the way and He's uh, it's it's kind of gone a little bit below that, but I, I agree with you. I think that's a totally say. I might even say forty five, and I think that that's I, th- I because I'm so confident he will do that. I, right. I don't think it's I don't feel bad, you know, saying that about him. Short uh, porch, uh, baby. Yeah, <laughs> short. The porch is still short. Still short. Uh, last one for you. Rank the following three players by how they finish in the Cy Young voting: Garrett Cole, Carlos Rodon, Nestor Cortez, and Matt Crook. Mm. Crook, Crook stands raise up 
<laughs> um, I will go with, I'll go Garrett Cole one. Um, you know, hot again, hot takes only, although it kind of is with how good Rodon has been. I know you boys know. Um, but here's what I'll say. I think everyone has to learn about that short porch a little bit. You know, I, I think, you know, Rodon's going to have a couple of those fastballs up and away. Garrett, Garrett to, is still learning. <laughs> I know, oh, I, believe me, I know. Um, Garrett is still learning and has his moments. But I think Rodon's going to run into a couple fastballs up and away to righties that, you know, used to get slapped off a giant wall in right field uh, in in the marine layer, if they have that in San Francisco, that that won't happen. So the e, ERA will take a jump. Um, I, I had a weird moment today. A, Cole finishes in the Cy Young voting every year, so it's, it's kind of a – it's the safest thing. Um, with Rodon also coming in with a, a my, hopefully a minor injury. Um, Garrett Cole does not have a Cy Young award, and he's not the springiest of chickens anymore. That if I'm Garrett Cole, you know, I'm 32, turning 33, I, I want something on my mantle. Um, he very much acts like a guy that kind of has a few in the bag, and he doesn't have one. So that's where he's he's my number one. I will go Rodon, too, because I think the strikeouts and energy and everything around it. Nestor, a sad three, just because, I don't know, he's technically a pitcher in his prime who's gotten better every year. Um, And it's just messed up. We don't respect him because he sometimes he doesn't look as sexy in the pinstripes. Um, And then I will take Crook for Ooh, the Crook hate. Because last year it went Rodon, Cortez, Cole in that order going down. Uh, We have the end of our, our little segment here is something called Barry Bonds which uh, is short for barometer bonds. And we want to know who on the Yankees is the barometer Mm. bonds, which players success and or failure will be the barometer for the entire teams. Who is the key cog in this machine? It's a tricky question, as you boys know, because, you know, you could obviously look at judge and things like that, but it's, I will give an easy answer. That is the right answer. I believe DJ LeMahieu. Um, he's another part of that Yankee success. Holy smokes. You want to talk about a hot streak that went under the radar before DJ LeMahieu got hurt. He was getting on base at a close to 500 clip, almost double the walks to strikeout. DJ LeMahieu, that slappy guy from Colorado who won a batting title, but that's all he does. He just slaps single. He was getting on base. He was getting some of the extra base hits and doing that all in front of judge while he was getting going. If you can give me at the top of that lineup, that'll set the tone enough. And if he can get on base in front of Big Aaron Judge, because right now, outside of him, there's no leadoff options. Um, so I, I will go with DJ LeMayhew as the big answer. And I'll, um, for funsies, I, I think it is your boy as well, though. I was nervous. I, I thought the Yankees weren't going to give him enough run. But now with all these injuries and what he can do at every position – when you listed our starting center fielder for opening day, there's a chance. There's a chance they put the kid out there because if you gave Judge the bag, let him win a golden right and just do it out there, the kid can play anywhere he wants, and he is literally – he's supposed to be the definition of an X factor. And I, I think – I was worried they weren't going to allow him to be that. I think now he will be that. To, to be clear, you're talking about Cabrera. I just want to make sure because it's yes, as well yeah, okay. Cabrera, just want to yes. make sure we get the name st- yeah. stated. Yeah. Okay. Gets, I mean, talk about tricky times with prospects. Oswald and as well. <laughs> That's I mean, true. That's t- true. They're not. And by the easy. way, 
he's also in the running for shortstop. He's starting there at spring training today. Right. Like they, the kid's special. Um, I am so glad you mentioned LeMahieu. He was so good in his first two years and so bad in 21. I know injuries have hampered both, yeah. but you're right. June, July was like, okay, we finally started to find it back and then back to being hurt. So, I mean, at this point with, with this injury track record over the last two years, I don't know what to really count on. And it seems like they're kind of the same yeah. way, which is why he's not obviously penciled into the starting lineup at the same time we can't ignore how amazing he was in those first two seasons and so if he can get to back to anything close to that i totally agree with you i think that's a great one uh jordan that, that stretch that 60 game stretch like look it up it's it's pretty unreal it's just who he is yeah um the one other guy i think jordan you and i were thinking about is luis severino who has been was hurt for a long time was Pretty durable considering how hurt he'd been a year ago. I think he threw like yeah. 108 innings or something. They are going to need him to be durable and good. But whenever he's pitched, he's been good. Um, and considering the lack of depth that this team has, he seems like a very important guy. We've been doing over-unders here, Jordan, uh, going off of the Vegas odds. I want to take those Vegas odds and I want to add three, two wins to that number. Because we are not talking to an unbiased <laughs> right. individual. Right. So the, the Vegas number is 94 and a half. I will bump that up to 96 and a half for you, Mr. Jake. Over under 96 and a half wins. How about this? With the bump, I will take the under. Um, there are a lot of questions with this team. We talked a little bit about Johnny Brito. I mean, not, <laughs> that's not a lot of... You know, a lot of Yankee season previews don't have the eighth starting pitcher mentioned. But that's a that's so, an us problem. Let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, we we are trying to dig into some some it's, stuff that's it's, not. It's we true. we've skipped over this John Carl Stanton fella. He's pretty good. Like there's <laughs> yeah. I but 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 there's a reason we were bringing them up. That's true. But with with that, the second half of the lineup was the problem in the playoffs. It's still not addressed. I've got a chunk of infielders. The best one might not be on the team until they call him up. Um, and I've got holes in the outfield with the Blue Jays taking a step. The Rays are going to be better this year. Your Orioles are a hell of a wild card. I can't tell wait, if they're going to win 90 or if they're going to be back down to like 73 this year. And Neither the Red Sox, I mean, I Boston, you know, that I think they're going to be in it for a little bit and then – the season will go up in flames, uh, but that sounds a little Yankee-ish. So that's fine. You, you're um, allowed to do that. That's fine. That's what yeah. you. That's what you so, should be saying. That's what we we're expecting about, you to say. So I'll, that's fine. I'll take 95 wins on the nose. There Love you go. it. Uh, I will also. T I'll take the slide under on the original line uh, for a lot of the reasons he just described. But again, balance schedule. We'll see how much that impacts the yeah. usual chaos and gauntlet that is the American League East. More games against the Central, like maybe that sounds good. Why not? Uh, <laughs> sounds sounds like a plan. Um, Jake talking, Jake not podcasting, Jake. Even though you're both both of those things. Thank you so much for joining us. I know there's no shortage of uh, places people can watch you do your talking. Um, but Literally it, just open up your phone <laughs> for, for, <laughs> and he's probably on there. For Yankees, for Yankees purposes, uh, if there's anything specific you would like to plug, please go ahead. Hey, man, you, you guys have it. We, uh, Cowboy Media has become something we didn't even 
think of possibly dreaming about. Uh, so Yankee stuff, talking Yanks, we we still crush over there. And uh, yeah, man, we're uh, we're in it. And I'm so I'm so excited for baseball because now we do so much other stuff that's not that like give me 7 p.m. you know six nights a week and and let's roll it out there. I'm ready. You're ready Love for it. Johnny Brito on like May. Uh, 8th. <laughs> no, really, really, he gets guys out. He turns he 96. Gets- what are we doing? <laughs> Oh, oh we have to adjust our terminology. Jake, thank you so much, man. We'll, we'll do this again soon. Thank you, boys. That's the AL East. We did it. We did it. We did it. Uh, we are, again, recording this on Monday morning. The WBC is almost at a close. We have two games left. We'll have the semifinal between Japan and Mexico tonight. The championship between the winner of Japan and Mexico facing off against Team USA on Tuesday night. So when we talk to you on Wednesday, we will have our champion. Um, But we did want to at least acknowledge some of the stuff that has happened in the WBC since we last talked. Um, Namely, sadly, Venezuela uh, losing a, just an incredible game um, over the weekend uh, that we saw uh, with Team USA. Of course, Trey Turner is looking like not only the best nine hitter in the world, but just one of the best players in the world. Phillies fans are amped about that. We saw Team Cuba, of course, get crushed by Team USA on Sunday night, which that result was not particularly surprising. But in the wake of our conversation with Alvin Gonzalez, I thought uh, just that crowd and, and what you know, kind of what that looked like was very interesting. We, of course, did see some protests during the game, before the game, some people running on the field. I think none of that was particularly surprising when you have that many people who feel very passionate about a, a situation. It was not surprising to see those kinds of things happening. Um, it was unfortunate that the game kind of stunk, but at the same time, I think it was a historic moment and it was it was pretty fascinating uh, to witness. And, and I think that I'm glad we had that conversation with Alden last week to kind of prepare us for that. Loved the quote from Randy Rosarena saying that he hoped Cuba would beat the U.S. so that he could beat Cuba himself. Very revealing. I don't think that will happen. I think Japan will beat Mexico tonight on Monday night. Well, Cuba's already out anyway. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And and we will have uh, the Japan-USA final that I think everyone anticipated when this all began. Rumors of Otani being available out of the bullpen in the final on Tuesday night which would be very yes. interesting. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was the one thing I wanted to mention coming in tonight's game. I talked about in the last episode, what does Japan's pitching look like? Do they use Roki Sasaki in the semi and Yoshinobu Yamamoto in the final? Do they use both of them in the semifinal and they have Otani and Darvish for the final? We'll see how it all shakes out. The point is they have so many options. And hey, credit to Mexico. I mean, Mexico's been awesome. You know, they gave us, they gave us the big upset. They gave us, um, you know, Randy's been unbelievable to watch on both sides of the ball. He's been super fun. So if Mexico upsets Japan, I think that will be fun. And then USA will be able to maybe get revenge on on Team Mexico. But we're all rooting for Japan, USA. I think that would give us the biggest spectacle and I think would also kind of give us the most satisfactory conclusion to this amazing tournament. Now, Team USA... In one ways, they have absolutely shown us exactly what they are capable of since we made fun of them for getting their ass kicked by Mexico. Their offense has been amazing. Their pitching has been fine. <laughs> um, it seems like they'll be going with Merrill Kelly in the final, which is a little strange. USA! Um, USA. Uh, but the offense might be so good that it doesn't matter, even against, um, I guess, Darvish and Otani will be their best chance against them. But that's the situation. I'm, I'm almost wondering if it'll be harder for them to face someone they've never seen before, right? Like... 
that that is one where maybe it is better to go with Yamamoto. I don't know. We'll find out. We will talk about all that on Wednesday. Um, any final thoughts before we say goodbye? What a lovely tournament it's been. I know. It's been great. I just love it. It's also not nice that we have just like, you know, seven o'clock, turn on an awesome baseball game. One baseball game that is awesome has been very fun. So I'm glad we get that for two more days before we return to our spring training pitch clock reality. Um, on Wednesday, we will have our NL Central, AL Central preview. I don't remember. Who knows? One of, Who cares? One of those will happen on Wednesday. Uh, but until then, thank you to Chris Tyler for producing this lengthy episode of Baseball Barbacast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jake Mintz, for co-hosting. Thank you to Talking Jake for Talking Yanks with us. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you guys on Wednesday. Serious XM Podcasts. <laughs>